Well, um, today we are going to be appointing Darren Thornhill as a deacon, and so I want to share some thoughts on that topic about being a deacon and the qualifications for being a deacon. Um, but before we get into that, I thought it might be also equally profitable to talk to the church a little bit about um, serving. Uh, you know, that's what the, the Greek for deacon is, serve, servant. Um, but clearly, the deacons aren't the only ones to serve. And so I thought it could be helpful to give a little exhortation to the church as a whole on this topic. Um, but before we even look into this, um, something I wanted to hit on that Andrew actually talked about last week um, briefly in his message, and that is the danger that we can get into, especially when we're talking about aspects of the Christian life that might be fit into the category of the doing part of the Christian life. If we aren't beginning with what God has done for us first, and we get that out of order and begin thinking, this is what I need to do for Christ in order to merit his favor, that's works mentality and that's wrong. And so we need to be very clear on this. When we're talking about serving one another, we're talking about it in light of the fact of what Christ has already done for us, which implies that we're, I'm talking to Christians here. This is really not uh, a message directed towards the unbeliever. This is directed towards the believer. Because of what Christ has done for us, it frees us to be able to live for him and to walk in that reality. Um, and it really is not duty-oriented. It shouldn't be duty-oriented. It should be driven from a heart of thankfulness for what God has done for us. As we meditate on what the Lord has done for us, it should move us uh, to want to live for him. And um, I was thinking about how in at least two books of the Bible um, that Paul wrote, there's a theme that he begins the book with, Doctrine, what has God done for me? And after laying that foundation, he then gets to, in light of that fact, this then is how you should live. And of course, in Romans, you have chapters 1 through 11 that is just packed full of doctrine. And then you get to chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy accept, uh, sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He doesn't say that until he's laid that doctrinal foundation. And then in Ephesians, there's a similar pattern. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians, where uh, Paul has expounded on the glories of what God has done for us in Christ. Then in chapter 4, he says... Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So again, you see that he's already laid the foundation, and then from there he can begin to exhort to walk in that reality. 
And so that's what I want to begin this time with, is just to remind you, I don't have time to go through in this message and lay that doctrinal foundation, but we need to keep that in our minds as we look at these things, that this is based upon what God has done for us in Christ, therefore, this then is how we should live. So uh, our first passage I'm going to look at here is in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you want to turn there. There's actually just two, uh, two passages on this topic of serving before we begin looking at uh, specifically at, at a deacon. So Ephesians chapter 4, I just read verse 1 to you, but we're going to skip down to uh, just read verses 11 and 12. It says, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, And some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So, question here, what is the purpose of the offices that Paul mentions here in these two verses? There's in verse 11 there, he lists several different, you might call them offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. What is the purpose of those? Well, in verse 12, we see it, for the equipping of the saints. This is why we have pastors and teachers, to equip the saints. Well, how is that done? How, how are the saints to be equipped? Well, it's through the teaching of the word, through modeling the Christian life, and through correcting when something is wrong, through pointing the saints to Christ. That is how they are equipped, is through the teaching of the word, through modeling, through correcting, and through pointing the brethren to Christ. But it doesn't end there. Once equipped, what are the saints to do? And that's the the follow-up there in verse 12. We have these offices for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. The church is not a place where everyone gathers and a few serve the majority. The church is uh, to be a place where a few equip the majority and everyone then serves. So part of being a leader necessitates modeling the Christian life, including service, But that doesn't mean that the leader is the only one who serves. So as we appoint Darren today, this is something to keep in mind. We're appointing him to be a leader in this area of service. But he's not to be the only one who is to serve. We shouldn't look at something and say, oh, there's a service need. Let's call the deacon. You know, that's the guy who can handle this job. No, Just the opposite. We are equipped so that we can serve one another. If a brother or sister is discouraged, we shouldn't think that, you know, it would really be great if someone came along and encouraged them, gave a word of encouragement. If the Lord brings that need to your mind, you're the one, maybe, who should give that word of encouragement. Is there something that you could share to encourage that brother or sister? Obviously, um, there are cases where a pastor um, or deacon may need to be aware and may need to be involved. 
But sharing the word is not a leader-only responsibility. It's for everyone. And serving the saints is not just a deacon job. It's for everyone. Well, another passage I'd like to look at is in 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 4. And begin reading in verse 8. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, a couple things to point out here from this passage. Each one has a gift. That's something to think about. Oftentimes we think of brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so obviously has a gift, but we don't think about this in light of everyone has a gift. Not just a few, each one, each one of you has been given a gift. And what is the purpose of the gift? Why do you have it? To serve one another. We see that there in verse 10, as each one has received a gift, employ it in serving one another. Gifts are not given to be hidden away and never used. They are given for the building up of the body of Christ. We are to use the means that God has given us to serve one another. But also, notice here the manner in which these gifts Uh, that we receive these gifts or the way in which we're to use these gifts. It begins with God gives to us and then we in turn give to others. And again, you see that there in uh, verse, let's see, verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God Supplies. You see, it begins with God giving, and then in turn, the saints use that and employ it in serving one another. God gives a word to share. We share it with others, and we saw that here this morning, different ones sharing what the Lord had given them. God gives us strength. We use it then to serve others. And this is key. We aren't to serve others with our own strength. If we do that, it's going to be messy. We're going to wear ourselves out, and it's going to turn into just a a sore spot for us, a grumbling about the serving because we're doing it in our own strength. We can't serve with what we don't have. And that's another thing. You can look at how someone else is serving. It's like, I'm going to serve just like that. Maybe you haven't been given the same abilities, the same gifts. 
the same uh, strengths as that other brother or sister. You aren't asked to give what you don't have. Sometimes we look around at the gifts that others have and feel that since we don't have a gift like that, that therefore we're not useful to the Lord or we're not useful to the church. You aren't asked to give what you don't have. You are asked to serve with what God has given you. And a couple examples of this, um, they're from Mark chapter 14 about the, the widow. You know, she came with a few copper coins, dropped them in. Hardly anything, but yet the Lord points to that and says, see what she's done? She's given from her surplus, all that she had, she has given. Even though it wasn't much, she gave all that she had. And then you also have there where Mary anoints the Lord's feet. And what does Jesus say? He says, she's done what she could. She's done what she could. She didn't do what she couldn't. She didn't do what maybe someone else did later, um, but she did what she could. She was given this alabaster vial somehow. I don't know how she came upon it, but she saw that as this is how I am going to serve the Lord through washing his feet, anointing his feet. Well, notice then the result uh, here in verse 11. God is glorified. That's the ultimate result. Why are we given gifts to serve one another? And what is the result that God might be glorified? This isn't about us receiving the glory. When weak people serve others with the strength that God supplies, God's the one who gets the glory. And that's the goal here. It's not about having a spotlight on us. Look what I've done. It's about glorifying God. So it says here that each one has received a gift. What does that look like practically? Well, you probably have seen some of these online or different places, the spiritual gift inventory. You know, take this personality test and see what spiritual gift that you have. I don't think that at all is what Peter is exhorting us to do here. Serving one another is not about finding the right need that matches my interests or my specific gift. That's not what serving one another is. When we see a need, we give to that need whatever God has given to us. So it's not about just trying to, okay, I've got this gift and I'm trying to find where I can plug that into. It's about being open and seeing where's a need and how can I help in that need. Someone may be sick or laid up at home for, for some reason. And one person may have the time and physical strength to go and mow the lawn or rake the leaves or do something around the house. That's a gift. That's a way of serving. But another may have some food and the time to cook a meal. That also is serving. Notice they're not the same thing, but they're both an act of service. Another person may not be able to do either of those things, but they are able to pray and send a word of encouragement, a note of encouragement to them. That, again, is an act of service. 
So you see that each one is giving what they have and serving with the strength that God has given them. So the question then for each one of us is, what has God given you? What has God given me? Serving others should not be a box, you know, this duty mentality, a box that we check off. There, I've done my service for today. Or there, I've done my service for this week. Now I can get on living my life. That's not what service is. Serving others is about living an other-centered life. Just the opposite of a self-centered life, an other-centered life. And it's a result of, as Philippians 2.3 says, regarding one another as more important than myself. If that's the way that I'm living my life, regarding others as more important than myself, then when a need arises, my first thought is not, oh man, that's going to really inconvenience me. But there's this idea of how can I get underneath that need and bear that burden for the individual. And brethren, it's not that every need you're going to be able to carry on your own. But the collective mentality of the church here, are we seeking to enter into the lives of one another through prayer, through service, through encouragement, through whatever means that the Lord has given us to serve one another? Well, a question then. If everyone is to serve one another, and if that is happening in the church, a question might come up, why do we need deacons? Why is there an office for deacon? Why are we appointing Darren today as a deacon if service is something we're all to do and if service is something that is happening? Well, for that, let's turn to Acts chapter 6 and look here at an account that doesn't specifically mention the term deacon, but I think it is kind of the first place that we see a deacon-like office in the New Testament. So Acts chapter 6, and just a little background here, of course this is the beginning of the church after Christ had ascended. Um, This is after the day of Pentecost and Believers are being added to the number of the church day by day, and not just a few, but it's up in the thousands now. I mean, it was exponentially growing, and that then leads us here to Acts chapter 6. It says in verse 1, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. 
And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So here's the situation in this, the early part of the church. They're growing in number. And I want to point something out here. It's not as though service isn't happening. What's interesting in this passage is apparently they are serving. They are giving. But a problem rose up. And what was that? Well, apparently they had some sort of daily distribution of food. Well, how, how did the food come about? We can only assume it was through the saints giving food. So already the saints are giving food. That's service. And then you have some that apparently are going around and delivering the food. That also is service. So you might think, what's the problem? Service is happening. Let's keep going on. Well, as the number is increasing, there was a, a management issue here. There were some people falling through the cracks, and some were being missed entirely. And this was causing division and strife within the church. And so the, the thing I want to point out here, it's not that service wasn't happening. It's that there was, um, it was lacking oversight to be able to make sure that every need was being met. So the disciples, or rather the apostles, wisely recognized this and thought the two options are either the apostles can oversee this need, which is then in turn going to take them away from being able to devote themselves to the word and to prayer, or they can appoint some men of good standing, good reputation, full of the spirit to oversee this need so that the apostles can continue to devote themselves to the uh, word and to prayer. And that's what they end up doing. And again, it doesn't specifically say deacons here, but I think this is a good illustration of what the role of a deacon is to free up the elders, the pastors, to be able to devote themselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Well, it brings up another question, and that is, what are the responsibilities of a deacon? Well, it may differ from church to church, and scripture doesn't give us a clear job description for us to look at. I mean, here we have Acts 6 where it doesn't even specifically say deacon, but we have this general principle of freeing up the elders to be able to uh, devote themselves to the word and to prayer. And in a little bit here, we're going to turn to 1 Timothy where it lists out qualifications of a deacon, but it never says what the deacon specifically is to do. And I believe that in many ways the need for the deacon helps form the responsibilities for the deacon. And it may look different from church to church because there may be different needs in different churches. But in general, I think we could say this, the deacon is to assist the elders in the care of the flock. The elders should be able to focus on the spiritual oversight and well-being of the flock. And the deacons should assist in areas that free them up to be able to do that, to free the elders up to be able to care spiritually for the flock. And we see that example here in Acts chapter 6. So in this church here at Lake Road, 
typically we've had the deacons oversee the physical needs of the building and of the saints, so not just the physical structure here, but also the physical needs of the brethren, and then also to manage the finances of the church. Now, when I say oversee the physical needs of the building and of the saints, keep in mind, we're not saying that they are um, the, the building committee that does all the work or that they are the service committee that does all the work, but they are to manage, to oversee. I don't believe that these seven that were appointed in Acts chapter 6 did all the work. In fact, I would be surprised if they did any of the actual delivering of the meals. I don't know. Maybe they did. But I think their their specific appointment was to oversee and make sure that needs were being addressed. And that's what we desire to have here in this church is not to appoint deacons to wear them out doing all the service, but to appoint deacons that they may be able to oversee the work and the needs in the service. Well, let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll spend the rest of our time here in this chapter. And this is the, the only place in the New Testament that really addresses the uh, qualifications of a deacon. We're actually going to read also the qualifications of an elder, an overseer, um, at the beginning of the chapter. And Paul does repeat that for the elder overseer in Titus chapter 1, but he doesn't in that particular passage doesn't repeat the the deacon's qualifications. So we're just going to spend our time today in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So I'm just going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 13. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. I might interject real quick here and just say for clarification purposes In the New Testament, there's many different terms that are used. Here it says overseer. In my uh, Bible, this is a New American Standard, but in the margin it says bishop. Um, In other passages of Scripture, it refers to um, an elder. And in others, it talks about a shepherd or a pastor. And I believe that all three of those, elder, overseer, pastor, are referring to the same office um, the same position, although there may be some different emphasis. Obviously, a shepherd is one who is caring for. An elder implies having some uh, wisdom and um, age, even. Um, an overseer, a manager overseeing the flock. So there's maybe different emphasis there, but they are referring to the same position. So all that to say... Throughout this message, if I use terms, I'm not trying to describe different offices, but the the scripture in the New Testament uses different words to describe the same office. So verse 2, an overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? 
and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued, or addicted to much wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their uh, children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, as we read through that, you may have noticed how similar um, the qualifications are for an overseer, elder, and a deacon. Um, Very similar wording is used, with the exception of um, for the elder overseer it does say able to teach Um, it doesn't mean that deacons uh, should not be able to teach but it's not a specific requirement you might say that a deacon be able to teach Um, but aside from the qualification for an elder being able to teach all of these for both the elder and the deacon All of these are character qualities, not special giftedness. And as you read through that, you'll see that it's talking about areas of character of the person, not their abilities. So notice what is lacking from these deacon qualifications. One thing that's lacking, it doesn't say must have a degree in accounting, It doesn't say plumbing, electrical, and general contractor experience preferred. It doesn't say ownership of a pickup truck. And it doesn't say leadership experience. And I bring this up somewhat uh, comically, but really we need to be careful in these things that we not begin to think like the world thinks. Like, that guy really knows how to swing the hammer. He would be a good deacon. That can be a skill that is useful for a deacon. But brethren, Scripture is not looking to your abilities. It's looking to the character of the person. So the first thought ought to be, that man loves the Lord, and he's walking in integrity. Maybe the Lord is raising him up for a position of leadership in the church, not how skilled is he at overseeing some project. The Lord is much less concerned with your physical abilities or the set of skills or tools that you have. He is concerned with your heart and with the character of your life. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it says, For God sees not as man sees, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So this is important in any church, in any leadership, is that we be looking the way the Lord looks, which is looking at the heart, looking at the character of the person, not just at their outward abilities. 
Well, um, I got a lot of help in this message from this book by Alexander Strock called Paul's Vision for the Deacons. Uh, he actually has another book. This is the newer version of it. I think he wrote another book about 30 years ago, but this is kind of his updated one. And I just wanted to read um, a brief section here. Underlying the qualifications for elders and deacons is Paul's fierce concern for the public testimony of the local church and the truths of the gospel before an unbelieving watching world. He knew that the devil would use any failing on the part of the church's leaders to shame the church's public image. So to protect the credibility of the gospel and the reputation of the local church from public ridicule, Paul insisted that the church's elders and deacons be above reproach morally and spiritually. Thus, the qualifications Paul lists are meant to safeguard the local church from unfit elders and deacons who could potentially disgrace the believing community. The qualifications are also intended to secure leaders who are qualified and equipped to lead and care for God's church. Well, um, as we look here uh, specifically at the qualifications for a deacon, um, it begins in verse 8 and goes down through verse 12. And then there's a um, verse 11 kind of in the middle there where it says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And there's been a um, kind of a split as to how this is interpreted. Some interpret this to be the wives of deacons, and others interpret this to be uh, deaconess. So a woman appointed to the office of deacon to to minister specifically as a deacon, uh, presumably to the needs of of widows and women in the church. Um, I am not going to even address this verse for the sake of time today. Um, So we're going to just uh, look at verses 8 through 10 and verse 12. But I will say this, that once again, these qualifications in verse 11 fit right in with all the other qualifications that we're looking at. Dignified, that comes up in verse 8. Not malicious gossips, well, of the men it says, not double-tongued, similar thought there. Uh, Temperate, they must be temperate, faithful in all things. So this fits very much with what we're already talking about um, with the deacons in verses 8 through 10 and in verse 12. But looking at 8, 9, 10, and 12, I'm counting seven different qualifications. In verse 8, we have uh, dignified, not double-tongued. Number 3, not addicted to wine. uh, Number 4, not fond of sordid gain. Number 5, in verse 9, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Number six, um, let's see here, jumping down to verse 12, deacons must be husbands of one wife, and then seven good managers of their children and their own households. Um, So we're just going to go through these briefly. I'm not going to spend much time on each one. But dignified, um, 
again, I don't know what versions you all are reading from, but in the New American Standard it says deacons must be men of dignity or dignified. And again, I found uh, a helpful paragraph here that I wanted to read. Today the word dignified might convey the idea of a person who is revered and proper in appearance and demeanor. So you kind of think about like in England with the, uh, the king or the queen, you know, royalty in that sense. But that is not the best meaning of the Greek term semnos that Paul uses here. The term semnos is not easily translated into English. It describes a person whose attitudes and conduct win the admiration of others. It refers to a respectable, well-thought-of person. The New International Version, or the NIV, better renders the term as worthy of respect. So this idea that a deacon be worthy of respect. So a deacon should be one who is well thought of by the church. They should not be one who has a blot on their testimony within the church. And a little aside on that, not that the deacon or the elder is flawless, but there should be a humility about the person so that if there are flaws present, if there are needs present, there's an approachability and a a willingness to receive instruction and correction and a desire to correct what is wrong in their life. So it's not about perfection It's about humility and character again. So an example of one who had a good testimony within the church is Timothy. And let me just read you this passage. I didn't write it down. Um, In Acts 16, it speaks of Timothy. It says, Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Well spoken of. Why was he well spoken of? Well, we see a little bit more of his character later on in the New Testament. But there's this idea that he had a good testimony before the church. Well thought of. So although Timothy was not a deacon, we see the same quality of being respected by those who knew him. And therefore, he could be put in a position of leadership, which Paul did by appointing him to basically be a messenger for the apostle and to go and appoint elders in other churches. Well, the second one here, not double-tongued in verse 8. A deacon should be one who is consistent in what they say. They can't be a person who says one thing to one person and then something else to another. And, you know, oftentimes it can be out of a desire to please other people, which is a fear of man. But there can be a temptation to say whatever is most agreeable to the party you're speaking of or speaking with. A deacon can't be that way. A deacon should be known for being truthful. You should be able to count on their words. So not double-tongued, not saying something to one person and then changing the story to another person just to save face or uh, to please people. Third, not addicted to wine, or much wine here it says. 
A deacon should be one who exemplifies self-control in all things. And in this specific passage here, alcohol or wine is a substance that Paul mentions, but I don't believe that Paul is singling out alcohol but permitting other things. He's not saying, don't be addicted to wine, but gluttony, that's fine. That's, you know, that's not going to disqualify. I think there's a particular danger with alcohol, with wine, in that it, uh, it can skew a person's judgment, especially if uh, drunkenness is present. But the bigger issue is that of self-control. How can you be a leader in the church if there are clear areas in your life that you're given over to something else and it has control of you? You see that? You can't. It could be alcohol. It could be drugs. It could be food. It could be gambling. It could be just about anything. But we see here a leader, a deacon in this particular passage, a deacon should be one who practices self-control in all things, not just as it pertains to, to alcohol. Well, the next one, not fond of sordid gain. And the English Standard Version says, not greedy for dishonest gain. So the issue here is not that a deacon cannot be one who is able to turn a profit. He might be one who is very business savvy and seems to always know how to invest and everything he touches turns to gold. That's not what Paul is speaking against here. He is talking about the one who is greedy. In other words, the one who is not content with what they have. But more than that, it goes even deeper than that. It's not just a discontentment. They are greedy to the point that they are willing to increase their wealth through dishonest practices. In other words, they're willing to sacrifice their integrity for the sake of increasing their wealth. This is something that clearly would disqualify someone from the office of deacon. The deacons here in this church and in many churches will have access to the money that is given to the church. The saints give money for, for the church, for the ministry of this church, and for missionaries. What if a deacon were to be one who was a lover of money and wanted to increase their own wealth and was lacking in integrity? You see how, how dangerous and how destructive that would be. So... The deacon must be one who we can trust that is not going to be fond of sordid gain. The next one here in verse 9, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. I'm going to address this one here in two parts. The first part being holding to the mystery of the faith and then part two with a clear conscience. So first, this idea of holding to the mystery of the faith. The deacon should be one who holds to the doctrines and teachings of Scripture. They should have a solid foundation of biblical understanding. It's not that they must graduate from some seminary or be able to pass some test, but that there be a sense in which they are solid in their understanding of the gospel and of the scriptural commands. They should not be wishy-washy 
on core doctrines of the faith. You know, if you ask them, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, you know, I'm just not really sure. It doesn't seem really clear. You know, that, that would not be one that you would want in a position of authority. They should be holding to the teachings of Scripture soundly. It is very similar to what Paul instructs Titus for the qualifications of an elder in Titus 1.9, and this is what he says there, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, with the teaching of the apostles. So holding fast to the faithful word. If it's in scripture, I'm studying it and I'm believing it. I'm holding on to that. That is, I believe, what it means is holding to the mystery of the faith. But then that leads us to the second point, with a clear conscience. What is meant here by this idea of a clear conscience? Well, I believe that it is referring to the fact that they first must believe and hold on to um, the word of God and be sound in their doctrine, but then second, they must obey the word of God. They must live it in their life. In other words, it's not just head knowledge. It's not just academic theology, but it's practical theology in their life. Their life should match their profession. Their life should match their doctrine. And again, I just want to read one uh, short paragraph here. The New Testament does not allow believers to separate life and doctrine. It requires consistency between belief and practice. However, some professing Christians claim to hold to orthodox doctrine, but exhibit unorthodox thinking and behavior. Over time, they harden their consciences so that they are no longer convicted of sin and rebellion. For Christians, such a serious disconnect between what they believe and how they live is unacceptable. The mystery of the faith is not abstract philosophy disconnected from one's daily ethical behavior and attitudes. So to qualify for the office, a deacon candidate must hold steadfastly to the faith and live a lifestyle consistent with the doctrines of the faith. So you see the two points there, believing it, having a good understanding of it, and then living it. Those two things both must be present. Well, I'm going to leapfrog verse 10 and 11 and go down to 12. We'll come back to 10 here in just a minute. So in verse 12, it says, Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. So this clearly would exclude polygamy, having multiple wives at the same time. But does this exclude one who is widowed and remarried? What about someone who is divorced and remarried? Does it exclude someone who is single since he doesn't have one wife? It says must be husband of one wife. Well, it seems like the best way to understand this is that the deacon should be faithful to his wife if he has one. He should be a one-woman man. If he doesn't have a wife, it does not exclude him from being a deacon. However, 
The majority of deacons will be married men, and those men should be ones who are faithful to their wives. And this same idea comes up, um, well, actually several of these that we've already looked at come up for the elders as well. Um, But it talks about, I didn't write it down here, in verse 2, the husband of one wife for an elder, the husband of one wife. Well, then lastly, good managers of their household and their children. And I'm kind of combining those two together. This one, I believe, can be misunderstood and misapplied. Uh, Some can wrongly interpret this to mean that their home should function like a military boot camp with the husband or father being the drill sergeant. You know, whatever I say goes and nobody questions it. That kind of a mentality. And I think this goes directly against what Paul teaches in Ephesians 6 verse 4 about fathers not provoking their children to anger. Another misunderstanding, though, is that some view this to mean if a father has a child who is rebellious or disobedient, that it means they are uh, not managing their household and their children well. And sometimes that is the case. Sometimes if a father um, is, well, if, if there is a rebellious child and the father has not been involved at all, rarely or never disciplines the child, is not involved in training or bringing them up, shows no interest in that child, then I would say, yes, there is a problem on the part of the father. And that would be an issue that would disqualify them. But at the same time, a father can follow all the biblical commands and exhortations regarding raising children And a child can still harden their heart against the teaching of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that the father has not managed his household well. And this will be the last passage I read from this book here. He says, The Christian father must not be passive, disinterested in his children, or neglectful of their needs. Uh, um, He should provide for his children financially, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. He must care about and contribute to their spiritual development. Above all, the Christian father must invest in healthy relationships with his children. In this sinful world, there are no perfect problem-free children or parents We are all flawed sinners who constantly need godly guidance and help. Since folly is bound up in the heart of a child, even the best fathers and mothers face problems and struggles with their children. So the requirement that the deacon be a father who manages his children well is not a demand for perfection. Rather, it describes a father who is actively engaged in the process of wisely and properly guiding his children through life's many struggles, failures, and problems. So I think that's a a real helpful, balanced idea of what this means to be a good manager. It means you're involved. Like you all in your workplace know what it's like 
to have a manager over you who doesn't have a clue about what you're doing. It's like, what's the point of even having a manager? I have to do all the work anyway. They're just a figurehead. That's not being a good manager. A manager is one who is involved, understands what's going on, can give guidance, can give counsel, and as it pertains to a father, a husband in the home, is actively seeking to speak into the lives of his children, seeking to lead his wife along, not, not follow his wife along. And oftentimes, brothers, our wives are more spiritual than we are. But we need to be nonetheless seeking to bathe them in the word, to teach the word at home, being involved in our families. That is what this is referring to, not the idea of absolute perfection. Well, aside from the qualification, well, I'm sorry, let me jump back. I said I was going to cover verse 10 here. Verse 10 says, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons. And this idea of testing is meaning that all of these qualifications that Paul has already listed are being held up. And the life of the prospect of Darren is being held up next to the biblical qualifications. There's a testing process. It's not just a, well, it's your time, you know, five years have gone by, it's now your turn to serve as a deacon. There actually is a a qualification process, looking at someone, looking at their life, and seeing if there's any clear contradictions with the word of God. And I can say emphatically and praising the Lord that we have as elders, and we've heard from many of you, have looked at the life of Darren and can say with certainty that his life is um, following what, what Paul outlines here in this chapter. Well, aside from the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy that we just looked at, I might add one more. And that is, a deacon should be one who already is entering into service for the church and takes an interest in it. In other words, a deacon is not someone who meets all the qualifications but is completely disinterested or is just absent in the sense of entering into service. That would not be a good fit for a deacon, but one who already, even without the position of being a deacon, is seeking to enter in and serve. In other words, you kind of look out at who already is serving, and that begins to rise to the top there. Who are the ones who are actively seeking to serve? And reading between the lines in Acts chapter 6, I think we could say this, The seven men who were chosen to oversee that task obviously had taken an interest in that that need. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been uh, appointed. They would not have been the ones recommended. You realize it was the people who brought forward these seven. It wasn't the apostles that said, I want that guy and that guy and that guy. It was the people who appointed and said, these are the seven we want to oversee. And the apostles came along and laid their hands on them, but it was the people who were doing it. We don't want someone going down to Jeff City to represent us if they aren't really interested in what's going on in our community, right? We want someone who's already invested in this community if they're going to represent us down in Jeff City and in the same way in the church. That is the same thing. We want someone appointed to this position who is already invested in serving. 
Well, two closing remarks. The qualification for elders and deacons are not a one-time evaluation and then you're set for life. It's not this stamp of there, you've, you've passed and now you're, you know, you're a deacon for life or you're an elder for life. These qualities should continue to be present in the leaders of a church. They, these examinations here will prove a man fit for the office of elder or deacon, but in the same way, a lack of these qualities or a failure in these qualities will prove someone unfit, even if they're already in office. And that's a sobering thing, but that's, that's the right thing. It's not a one-time pass and you're in, but there's a sense in which we're always subject to what the Word of God says. And then finally, this is really more of an exhortation to the church, but, or I should say to all of us. These qualifications for an elder and a deacon, and again I'm going to throw in there, with the exception of able to teach, should not be viewed as qualities that are exclusively present only in elders and deacons, but don't apply to the rest. These qualities should be present in each and every member of the body. We should all be striving towards these things. And think about this. Consider the similarities with other New Testament exhortations. And I'm not going to have you turn to these, um, but I'll just mention a few here in closing. So we already saw dignified, worthy of respect. Well, what does Paul say in Ephesians 4.1, which I read there at the beginning? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. What does that sound like? It's kind of like saying, you know, walk in a dignified manner. Walk in a respectable way. That's not being addressed to pastors and deacons. That's being addressed to the church, to everyone. We already looked at, don't be double-tongued. Well, how about Ephesians 4.25? Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his, name, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Clearly applies to all of us. Sordid gain. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Once again, applies to deacons, applies to the rest of us as well. And then finally, another one that we looked at. Good managers. Well, Ephesians 6.4, speaking to all fathers, not just elders and deacon fathers, all fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that was just a quick pass there, but I think we could go through um, the rest of the New Testament and probably find multiple examples of this very thing, where here we have um, the qualification for a church leader, but there's also going to be another passage that says the same thing for the church body. What does that mean, really, ultimately? The idea of being a church leader is not this idea of being someone super spiritual. The idea of being a church leader means you're a Christian. You have a love for the Lord, and you're seeking to live it diligently, and there's a sense in which the people around you in the church recognize God's hand upon your life. That's all it is. It's not this super spiritual mentality, and we need to be careful that we not look to our church leaders in that way. 
There isn't a super Christian. There is no such thing as a super saint. But we can all seek to live godly lives in Christ Jesus.